Lord Jesus, we thank you for the testimony through music, the reminder through music, to look for the love of God in this world in which we live. As marred as it is, there are still many examples. And Jesus, may we be examples as well. May your word convict us now. As we see the transforming power of the word in Michael's life, may we be reminded that that word can transform aspects of our lives that need to be changed as well. In your name we pray. Amen. While I was in California, I had the opportunity via the internet to watch a great deal of the Republican National Convention. I, would, I was at a camp meeting and I would go to the camp meeting and do our things at the camp meeting uh, during the day and in the evening for the meetings and then I would go back to my uh, trailer and they had internet coverage for the first time there in years and I would um, watch some of the major talks of the National Convention. Then while I was driving across the country and again, I appreciate your prayers for that journey. But when I was driving across the country from California here to home, I discovered that I had Sirius XM radio. I didn't know I had Sirius XM radio. And I thought it was, I thought maybe they had decided that Sirius radio was now free. And two days ago, I turned it on and they told me I had to pay for it. And so I guess it was just a promotion. But I am so grateful that the promotion timing worked out just during, the, uh, during my trip. And so I was able to listen to the uh, entire, every night of the Democratic National Convention as I would drive. Now granted, the, the conventions were definitely different from one another and they had different focuses and different feels to them. But at both conventions, I heard this word that was being used by people up on the platform and it was this word, love. Love for country mainly is what people talked about. Uh, some people were talking about love for their fellow citizens, wanting to protect and, and defend their fellow citizens because they love them. There was even some talk of love of God, that we love God and therefore we have to uh, uh, do the right thing for our nation. We had pastors at both places that spoke in that way. But the love that was being expressed in those conventions and the love being expressed in the current public discourse is not a love that I believe that any Christian should recognize or in any way endorse or embrace. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Of course, this is the love chapter. If you've been to a wedding, more than one wedding, then you've likely seen or heard this text. But it applies much further than beyond the marital relationships. In fact, it was written in the context of the service and the work and the giftings within a church body. But there's lessons in this chapter for all of us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 4, it says, Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not boast, love is not arrogant, love is not rude, love does not insist on its own way, love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. May I ask you a question? Does this love 
that the Bible speaks about, does this love we are, equate to the love that we are hearing spoken of within the national, uh, the public and political discourse at this time? Does this sound? I mean, just think about it. Love is patient. Love is kind. It tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 13 that, 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 that there's no boasting in love. I don't know if any of you have heard any boasting over the campaign. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. I would assume rudeness would include uh, name calling. I don't know if you've heard any name calling. Love does not insist on its own way. You know, love recognizes that, that people see some things differently and that there's, there's compromise. Love is not irritable. Do you think any of the, in the political convention, did you notice any irritability in any of, any of that? There's no resentment. Love does not rejoice in the wrongs of others. In other words, if you, did, if you messed up, no one's gonna, no one's gonna, you know, love doesn't, wouldn't tweet about it maybe or, or, or run a, a three-day story cycle on it. Love rejoices in truth. I don't know about you, but to me, when I read this, I realize this does not only sound, this does not sound like the current love of country or fellow man or God that is being spoken of in our nation right now. In fact, it sounds to me like the exact opposite. It sounds to me like the exact opposite. So what is the point? Why do I bring this up? Well, let's look at first, or let's look at John, the gospel of John chapter 17. The gospel of John chapter 17. Jesus' famous prayer right before he is taken to the cross there in the Garden of Gethsemane. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. Jesus prays this prayer for all of us. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, this is Jesus again praying, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. It is from this prayer that we come up with a concept that is spoken of within Christian circles of being in the world, but not what? Of the world, so you've heard of this before being in the world, not of the world. We live here, we operate here, but we are not to live for here or for the things of this world, and we are not to operate like here, like the way the world operates. We are in this world, but we are, as believers, as believers, we are to look for every opportunity to be different from the world when the world is acting in direct opposition to the word of God. When the world is acting in direct opposition to the world of God, one of, a believer, one of the responsibilities that a believer has is to act the opposite, to, to show the world its error, not by telling them it's error, but by living differently than the world is living. So if the world speaks of love with a kind of anger and a kind of resentment and a kind of irritability, then as the believers, we should speak of love and look and act in a loving way that is completely different than that. I would say, I would say that in the rancor of the discourse taking place in our society right now, that we as believers in Jesus Christ have a great 
opportunity to truly shine and be evangelists for him. Not just by what we teach, but by how we live. By choosing to speak, not even in what the world would call civil discourse, but, but choosing to speak in a civil Christian discourse. Thinking about 1 Corinthians 13 and, and how that describes love. With the name calling, the pointing out of mistakes, the piling on when someone messes up, the mocking, all in the name of love of country and love of fellow man, I believe as Christians we have a great opportunity to be in this world voting active citizens but, ought of, but not of this world refusing to take the bait and denigrate any other human being, even those we disagree with, recognizing that Jesus Christ loves them just as much as he loves us and died for them just as much as he died for you. I want to show you two times that Jesus had the opportunity. Two times. There's other times in the scripture. But two times that Jesus had the opportunity to slam the political leaders of the day and how he handled those opportunities. Because really what we're saying, when we're saying we are in the world but not of the world, when we're saying that we want to be a, a contrast to the way the world lives, what we are saying is that Jesus calls us to be like him. So let's look at two opportunities in which Jesus had the, the, the capacity to attack the political leaders. He had the platform. He had the moment. He had the, the, the setting in which he could attack the political leaders. And let's see how he handled each of those two situations. Turn first to see the first opportunity. Look in Matthew chapter 14. The first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Matthew 14, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod, then they're giving context, had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So John is speaking to an issue, and he says, hey, Herod, it's not okay for you to be sleeping with your brother's wife. We would believe that that's an okay statement for John to make, right? We would all hopefully make that statement as well. And he said, you cannot make this statement because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and they told Jesus. John the Baptist Three very key connections to Jesus. Three very key connections to Jesus. First of all, the, the, the most important, I would say, is John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. In other words, he was the one who, who, who proclaimed the coming of the Messiah, the, 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 the proclamation of his first coming, prepared the ground, so to speak, for Jesus when he was walking on this earth. So he was the forerunner for Jesus. He had an important role in the mission of Jesus. 
The second thing was, is John the Baptist was the one who baptized Jesus. He played an important role in the ministry of Jesus himself. John said, I don't want to do this. And Jesus said, this must be done to fulfill prophecy. So John participated in that. A third connection that, that John had to Jesus is this. He, is, he was Jesus' cousin. He was Jesus' cousin. There was actually a familial, a blood connection. This person that was beheaded, Jesus would care about anyone that was beheaded, but this person that was beheaded was just not some guy that Jesus had never heard of. This was someone that was deeply connected to Jesus himself. And Herod has taken this man's life. Why? Why did Herod take his life? To protect his political position, to protect his personal ego. Herod in that moment is embarrassed. What should I do? And, and to protect his ego, he kills a man. Jesus is told about this. Jesus is told about what happens. And now notice the response of Jesus in verses 13 and 14 of Matthew chapter 14. Now when Jesus heard this, when he heard about the death of John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now let me ask you a question. Do we believe that Jesus had an opinion about what Herod did to John the Baptist? Yes or no? Do you think he had an opinion on about what Herod did to John the Baptist? Yes. Do we believe that most likely, let's, let's, let's make a safe assumption, most likely Jesus believed Herod to be an unfit ruler, yes or no? Yes, probably so. I mean, I think that most of us would assess, and we believe that Jesus is smarter than all of us, would assess that someone who beheads somebody out of ego is probably unfit to rule. Jesus hears about this. He's out in the countryside by himself, and people come to him. They come to him to, to, to hear what he has to say. Jesus now has a platform to address such issues. This great travesty, this great barbarism has just taken place, and Jesus now has the opportunity to address this issue, to speak against the inhumanity of Herod, to speak against the wrongful acts of Herod, to speak against the ego of Herod, to speak about the immorality of Herod. He has an opportunity, and notice what the Bible says that he did. He went ashore, he saw a great multitude, he saw a great crowd, and he began to heal them because he had compassion on them. He forgoes the platform to, to, to oppose this political leader, to, to respond to what this political leader has done to his cousin, to his own family, to the one who baptized him, to the one who went before him. He, he, he rejects that opportunity and he spends his time and utilizes this moment when the crowd came to hear from him and to know from him to heal them and show them compassion. Opportunity number two, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Opportunity number two that we'll look at this morning, beginning in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words or in his talk. I find it interesting 
And maybe this is, should teach us something. I was, I was thinking about this as I was writing the sermon. Maybe this should teach us something. The Pharisees thought to themselves, how can we entangle Jesus? How can we get Jesus to stumble on his words? How can we get Jesus to do something that will, that will prove that he is not really who he says he is? How can we get him to act in a manner or say something in a manner that would, that would, um, that would discourage people from wanting to follow him? And you know what they do? The, the thing they come up with to say, okay, how can we entangle him? How can we get him to fall? Let's choose the most politically charged issue of the day and ask him about that. Maybe that should be a lesson to us. That if the, the Pharisees thought the best way to get Jesus to fall, let's talk to him about politics. Maybe it should remind us maybe not to be mindful of, of talking about politics. Do we maybe reveal at times that we aren't always, and myself included in this, that we aren't always who we say we are as Christians when we are talking about political issues or talking about political candidates. So anyways, they say, let's try to entangle Jesus. What are we gonna do? Okay, let's go ask him about the top political issue, the, the, most, the most fraught with, with, with frustration, the, most, the issue that's most fraught with, with, with potential uh, uh, disaster. Let's ask him about that. Verse 22. So the Pharisees sent, verse, uh, verse 16, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Here they're trying to butter him up. Some of us have had those conversations even about political issues as well. So what do you think about this? I mean, I'm, I'm just curious. And they act all sweet about it and then you give your opinion and the next thing you know, they're like, yeah, well, you know what I think and then they tell you and it suddenly gets really Intense. We've had those moments. I've had those moments at least. We kind of have done those, those things. So they're trying to butter him up. We know that you don't care about people's opinions. We know that you'll speak your mind. We know that you'll tell us the truth. Tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God's the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him, and they went away. And let me tell you something. The taxation system of the day was extremely oppressive. If you think our taxation system is oppressive, we know nothing. The taxation system of the day was extremely oppressive and fraught with, 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 with deceit and with greed and with compromise. The rich got richer and the poor got poorer. Do we believe that Jesus would be against a system do we believe that Jesus would be against a system that would cause oppression to a certain group of society that was already be, being oppressed? Would Jesus be, be against such a system, yes or no? Yes, of course he would. If we read about, in the Old Testament, we read about the system and the structure that Jesus set up, we see that Jesus didn't set up a tax system like Caesar did. 
or like the Roman government did. Jesus' system was that, that everyone could glean off the edges of the field. Jesus' system was that, that every seven years people would be set free from, their, from their, their debts and their bondage. Jesus set up a system in which every 50 years a land that might have been sold to pay off a debt in the process would be, be returned back to the original family that owned it in the first place. Jesus set up this type of system. But, but notice what Jesus does in this moment. Notice what Jesus does in this moment. Jesus refuses to take the bait. Jesus refuses to criticize the leadership. Jesus doesn't say, well, let me tell you real quick about my tax plan, and if you were doing it this way, then you would be far better off as a society. No, instead, what does Jesus do? Jesus says, see the coin. It says it goes to Caesar. Give it to Caesar. And he moves on from the topic. He doesn't say, man, how could you ever give money to this individual that oppresses society, this individual that, that, that pushes down the poor and elevates her? Jesus doesn't say any of that. He answers the question about the money, and he moves on from the topic. He refuses to take the bait. He refuses to take the bait. There are other examples in scripture as well of Jesus refusing to take the bait. In every example, in every example, Jesus chooses to focus on the greater purpose. Jesus refuses to forward the email. Jesus refuses to like the cruel or unkind partisan Facebook Post. Jesus refuses to interject a joke about Caesar and his corruption or his political views. Jesus refuses to use words like crooked or liar or demagogue. Jesus refuses to not show love. We take a stand on issues, absolutely, yes. John the Baptist took a stand on issue. He said, it's not right for you to sleep with your brother's wife. We take a stand on issues. Adventists have always embraced taking stands on issues, whether it be A.T. Jones, way back in the day, fighting for the separation of church and state, a fight that we continue to have within our nation, whether it be Ellen White speaking in favor of prohibition or Ellen White writing about the Civil War. We have worked as a church, we used to work much harder on this, but we have worked in a church to, to, to put forth the idea of that you can serve your country, but you can do it with a conscientious objection to war. There's a movie coming out that all of you will hear about in November. The director is Mel Gibson, and it's a movie all about Desmond Dawes and how he served in the military, but he refused to carry a weapon, and yet God used him to save hundreds and hundreds of lives. We always have spoken to the issues. We engage mentally in what is happening in our world. We need to be informed about what is happening in our world. You know, some people kind of say, I hear all the rancor, I hear all the things, and I just want nothing to do with it. And they say the phrase, ignorance is bliss. No, we need to be aware of what is going on in the world so that we see the signs of what is happening in our world. Ellen White even stated at one point that Adventists should vote for pro prohibition even if that means voting on the Sabbath. We've been in, encouraged to be a part of, of, of society and speak to the issues, but we do not 
We should not denigrate the humanity of anybody involved in the process. We should not join the public discourse and call it love for country or love for our fellow man, even though it looks so much like the love of Satan and his ways and not the love of God. We follow the example of Jesus, who when given the opportunity to tear down a political leader of the day, refused to do so, no matter how much he may have disagreed with them. We follow the instruction of Paul, who in Titus chapter three, verses one through three, in fact, turn there with me. We're almost done. Titus chapter three, verses one through three. Just after the books of Timothy, just before Philemon and Hebrews. Titus chapter three, Paul here, writing to Titus, speaking to a church, he says, remind them, remind the church, remind the believers, remind those who follow Jesus Christ to be submissive to rulers and authorities. He's not just talking about rulers and authorities of the church, he's talking about the rulers and the authorities of the nation and the world as well. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authority, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And then listen to verse two. To speak evil of no one. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. The speak evil of no one is speaking of not speaking evil against the rulers and the authorities of the day. Paul says, as a church, as believers, this is how you should be. You should not speak evil against the rulers and the authority of the day. Of the day. And then notice why in verse 3, and I love this, notice why in verse 3, he says this, chapter 3, verse 3 For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. You and I may very well believe that some of the leaders in our midst or those desiring to be leaders in our midst are foolish. We may believe that they are disobedient. We may believe that they are lovers of malice. We may believe that they are greedy. We may believe that they are liars. We may believe that they are immoral. We may believe all these things, but the Bible says that we are not to speak evil of them or denounce them or denigrate their humanity or denigrate them as people. Why? The Bible says because all of us have had the same struggles. All of us have been foolish. All of us have been led astray. All of us have been disobedient. All of us have been slaves to various passions and lusts. All of us have passed our days at one point or another with a little bit of malice in our heart. All of us have maybe even had a little bit of hatred at one point or another towards someone else. Or maybe we've been hated even ourselves. Why do we not speak evil? Why do we avoid quarreling even about the leaders of the nation? Because we are sinners that are in need of a kind and a compassionate and a gracious God that loves us. It's just the same 
as Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or Gary Johnson or Lisa Stein or whoever it may be is in need of a savior that loves them and died for them just like he did for us. Even if you believe or even if you know the candidates are all these things, we don't speak like those at the conventions. We don't speak like those in the world. We don't do so because we know the God who loves them just as much as he loves us. Brothers and sisters, we are moving into our evangelistic season. We're gonna have our evangelistic meetings in the fall, but evangelism is more than just the knowledge we place before people on the table in which they can inhale. Evangelism includes how we live in opposition to the world when the world is opposing the word of God. How we live not in opposition by our words, but how we live in opposition by being different. We have the opportunity to be evangelists in, I believe, a unique and a particular way between now and November 8th. We have a great opportunity of showing the world that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. That when presented with the opportunity to tear down another human being, even one we may disagree with strongly, we will refrain. Rather than, rather than directing the conversation further into angst and entanglement, we will choose to direct the conversation towards Jesus. Rather than participating in the conversation on Facebook or Twitter or email or just the casual cooler talk, we will seek to engage in a conversation of love and compassion. Even if given the platform and the opportunity, we will choose to be in the world but not of the world because love is patient, love is kind, love does not boast, love is not arrogant, love is not irritable, love is not rude. Love does not rejoice in the wrongs of others, Love believes in truth and embraces truth. Folks, let us truly be believers in Christ this political season and show the love of Jesus to the world around us. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. You know, this is something that I struggle with. I enjoy the political fray. But Lord, maybe I be mindful in all of it. May our congregants be mindful in all of it that our greatest priority is not country, is not party, is not personal view. Our greatest priority as believers in Jesus Christ is to rightly represent you, Jesus. And so may we follow your example. And rather than taking the opportunity to denigrate, May we take the opportunity to talk about Jesus and to build everyone up and to recognize that we are all foolish, we are all sinners in the hands of a loving and a wonderful Savior. In your name we pray, amen.